Well, welcome to CLA here on this fine morning in September. We're going to begin a study in the Psalms and uh, selected Psalms. And this morning, as you can see from what I wrote on the board, we're going to talk about Psalm 9, part of Psalm 9. And I entitled the message, I Will Praise You. To begin with, let's just read the whole psalm, although we're only going to deal with part of it, but it's always good to read the context, and we'll read through it uh, from the beginning here. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne, judging in righteousness. You rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever, and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. When he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praise. In the gates of the daughter of Zion, I will rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared by the work of his own hands. Meditation, or in the Hebrew, higion. The wicked shall turn into hell, and all the nations shall forget God. For the needy, shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. So although we believe that all scripture is given by inspiration of of God, of course, by the Spirit of God, and is therefore profitable, uh, if not glorious, in beauty, in power and wisdom and application to our souls, I would guess that most of us, uh, God's people here, find a particular delight in the book of Psalms. It's uh, precious to us in many ways. And we appreciate the Spirit's inspiration of men like David and Asaph and Moses and the other authors in the writings of these pieces of what were better known as Hebrew poetry. And yes, they would be classified as Hebrew poetry, but by the very name in the Greek Septuagint, They're called psalms, as I wrote up here. That's in the Greek, which is translated songs. The Hebrew, it's mizmor, which means vocal or instrumental psalm. So very similar in the words themselves, only obviously one's Greek and one's Hebrew. The most prominent feature of Hebrew poetry, which I believe Brantz might have mentioned when he went through the psalms, is the repetition of ideas or thoughts, which is called parallelism. Uh, In other words, to quote one author, just to give a a quick definition, an idea is stated and then immediately expressed again in different words with the concepts of these two lines corresponding more or less closely or, as we'll see, sometimes in contradiction to each other. There's three basic types of parallelism, as I wrote up over there on the board, found in most Hebrew poetry. The first is synonymous, 
in which the idea is repeated in a similar way. I'll read you Psalm 34.1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You see how that works? Synonymous. First he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Then the next phrase is, his praise shall continually, at all times, continually. So it's a repeated thought. The second uh, idea, which is uh, second, is called antithetic, which is stated by opposition. And we find that in Psalm 138 and verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from far. There's actually two antithetical thoughts here. The first is, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. So there's high and low. But then the other thought is that the Lord regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So there's two antithetical thoughts there. The third is called synthetic, where the second line develops or extends the thought of that first rather than merely repeating it. And a good example of that is found in Psalm 145, verse 3. Listen carefully as I read it. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So it goes from great, greatly, greatness. Okay, It's picturing how God is, is great. He's great, he's greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So that's what's called a synthetic thought. So there are other categories in Hebrew poetry, but these are the main ones and most frequently used in the Psalms. And we'll see the use of primarily a synthetic parallelism here in Psalm 9, verses 1 through 2, although some could argue that it could be a mixture of synonymous and synthetic parallelism. But in general, we can be glad that our God didn't give us his word in dry didactic statements with no rhythm, no melody, no sense of, you know, of, of poetry to them at all. Rather, he did give us this prose to speak to us in the Psalms in particular, of course. And he also gave us music to express our praise of him using these very same songs. Okay? So God is the God of music, a God of melody. He's not just dull, dry you know, statements that have no sense of rhythm to him. No, he is a God of, of, of melody, of music. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, the scriptures encourage us to sing, as you're probably aware, not only in the Psalms, and there's plenty of passages you can look up uh, regarding praising God in the Psalms, but in general, we can see that God provides us with expressions of singing throughout the scriptures. Uh, for instance, James chapter 5 and verse 13 says, if anyone among, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Another passage, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. <clears throat> and a couple other passages I'm not going to read right now, but you can look up Isaiah 35, verse 10. Isaiah 35, 10 and 1 Corinthians 14, 15. And of course, like I said, you can look through the Psalms and find plenty of, plenty of the explanations or expressions of singing. The scriptures even tell us that God himself actually rejoices over us with singing. That's found in Zephaniah three seventeen. When you think about that, it's an easy statement to read, but think about the fact that our God rejoices over us with singing. Now, I've been a song leader for over 50 years of my life, and I enjoy singing. And I look forward to the opportunity to gathering with the saints in heaven uh, to listen to the angel choir singing holy, 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 joining with them in doing that, or joining with all the redeemed 
and singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and praise. That will be a wonderful time. But I would love to hear, I would be amazed to hear, the triune God singing. Can you imagine the perfect harmony, the perfect melody that the triune God would sing if they were to sing over us? That would be an amazing thing to hear and see. That would be awesome to hear God singing how perfect it would be, how refreshing it would be, how amazing it would be. Something to think about. So singing is a wonderful thing. If God can do it, we can do it because he's made us in his image. And we should be seeking to sing his praise. So we're only going to be focusing on the first two verses here of Psalm 9. But I encourage you to reread the psalm in its entirety and meditate on its message. Uh, it is what we call a psalm of lament. A lament being usually a case where the uh, writer is having difficulties, either you know physical difficulties, uh, he's being persecuted to some degree, or he's worried or in fear of something. So he expresses this in this lament, this kind of woe is me, so to speak. But then usually he goes to some sort of refreshing thought of God's in control, or a guy will praise God regardless. So lament is, is like that, sort of a complaint, but also a complaint usually with a uh, reflection upon the mercies of God. It's, but it's also a prayer. This is a prayer of thanksgiving for God's righteous judgment on the wicked. Now, some scholars believe that Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 were originally a single psalm. Uh, you'll note that Psalm 10 in your Bibles has no title, has no reference to an author. Uh, and we can also note that together, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 form an acrostic. In other words, all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are, begin, uh, begin one through each verse, and they go all through these two psalms. So it's, it very well could be that these two psalms, 9 and 10, were at one point combined. <clears throat> also, just as an aside, since we read it, verse 20 in Psalm 9 is a pertinent and needed prayer today. When you look at that verse, that the world would know that men would know, that the, the world would know that they are but men. He is God and they are but men. So let's look now at what I'll call the four I wills, the four I wills found in verse 1 and 2. The first, and we're going to basically just split up each verse into two parts. The first is with my whole heart in the psalm, I guess you might say verse 1a, with my whole heart. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. So first we note what? A determinative nature of this statement. It's not a casual, well, I could or I might or maybe even I should praise the Lord, but I will praise you. I will praise you. Spurgeon put it this way. It is our duty to praise the Lord. Let us perform it. Let's perform it as a privilege. Let's perform it as a privilege. In other words, we, as those redeemed by the mercy of God from the judgment we deserve, should make it a holy resolution to praise our God. Psalm 146, verse 1 and 2 does this. It says, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul, while I live. Does that sound like you take a day off? While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. That's a commitment. I will praise the Lord while I live. While I'm still alive, I'm going to praise the Lord. While I have my being, while I'm in existence, I am going to praise God. That's a commitment. And that's something we should joyfully commit to as believers. As believers, we really have no higher calling than to spend our lives constantly praising our great, merciful, condescending, gracious, holy, and unchangeable God who has loved us with an everlasting love. Amen? I mean, it should be something obvious and should be something we do joyfully. 
because of all he's done for us. Indeed, it will be our duty and joy throughout eternity to praise God. And while we may be thankful for the people, many people, that God has brought into our lives to bless us and in some cases instruct us for our good, it is you, O Lord, that deserve all of our praise. Notice that verse. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Exodus 15.11 tells us, Who is like you, O Lord, amongst gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Who is like him? Therefore, we should praise him above all. Now, next we notice the complete commitment here in this next phrase. It says, it is to be with our whole heart, with our whole heart. This is not to be anything casual about our praise of God or anything half-hearted, but rather an intensity, a determination, an enthusiasm to do it with all of our heart. Do we really think he deserves anything less? Think about that for a moment. Did, did the Godhead withhold anything in planning our redemption? Did they cut any corners? Did they come up with kind of an you know, easy plan for them to work out that would not you know, in any way mess up their, their uh, unity and their, their preservation of, of, the, of the sovereign will they had? No, they, they came up with a plan which they together determined that the Son of God had to become man and suffer and die upon a cruel cross, enduring the eternal wrath of God for our sins. Did not God commend or demonstrate or show the full measure of his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? As we're told in Romans 5.8, how much more then should we demonstrate our love toward him than by praising him with our whole heart? Half-hearted love is no love at all. In Psalm 45, verse 1, The sons of Korah begin with these words, my heart overflows with a good theme. And then they go on to describe the king in all his glory and his majesty. They love God and they begin with this, my heart is overflowing with praise to God. And so they go on to do that. And we should have that same attitude as we think about God. We should overflow with praise to him. Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9 reflects on this very psalm, on Psalm 9 and attributes it to a description of Christ. It's speaking of Christ. Are our hearts overflowing with praise of our God and King of Kings? And though we certainly would, could, should praise God in our private devotions and, and our you know, fellowship perhaps with others, Psalm 111 and verse 1 exhorts us to praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. That phrase is repeated, by the way, quite a few times in the Psalms. With my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. May we find great joy in together praising him here at ARBC. In our congregation, may that be our joy to praise him above all others. Let's move on now to the second part of verse 1, second half, I guess you can call it which is talking about declaring his works. I will tell of all your marvelous works, your marvelous works. To quote from the Reformation Study Bible footnotes, the Hebrew word translated marvelous works refers to the great acts of God, his intervention in human affairs, as in particularly in the Exodus from Egypt is one example. I will tell or show forth God's great works in history as well as in my own life. And we we all should do the same. Spurgeon declared there is true praise 
in the thankful telling forth to others of our Heavenly Father's dealings with us. Gratitude for one mercy refreshes the memory as to a thousand of others. Of course, when we begin to think of God's marvelous works, uh, we most naturally would go back to creation, of course, um, which without question was a magnificent work of God, as we know. And today, we deal with so-called scientists who push evolution, but that should not upset us because we should not be shy about declaring our belief in God's creation of all things, let alone his sovereign disposition over all things, as Brian's been teaching here in CLA as he covers the uh, 1689 uh, confession. True science, as well as sanctified logic, proves God's creative wisdom in the design of this world and the universe itself. And if you're unsure about how to present this truth to uh, people regarding God's creation and the reality of it, there's a lot of great resources you can refer to that helps you in presenting the truths, both the scripture and the truths when it comes to creation science itself. Uh, people, groups like Answers in Genesis, Dr. Kent Hovine, um, uh, Institute for Creation Research. A lot of different groups have great material to help you to be able to present this, this clear position that God made the world and all things in it, and he's managing it. In fact, when we think about it, it's hard for us to not see it when we look clearly and, and honestly at so many aspects of God's creation. But perhaps the greatest work, of course, the even greater work than creation itself, was God's plan of redemption, which was put in place before he created the world as well as before the fall of man. And it necessitated that plan of redemption. But when it comes to presenting truth to people, obviously we have to rely upon the Holy Spirit. We might be as clear and as ethical and as straightforward and as honest and as factual as we can be, but ultimately we have to realize that it's the Holy Spirit that's going to convince people of God's creative power, that he created all things, and that they owe him as their creator obedience. And if not, they must repent and believe on Christ whom he sent to reconcile them to himself. So we rely not only on our wisdom, logic, arguments, but we rely on the Holy Spirit to clearly make it uh, obvious to people who created all things. What are his marvelous, these are his marvelous works, not some unnatural natural thing that happened over time without anybody coordinating. So as we consider telling others of God's marvelous works, we have much to choose from, a lot to choose from. In fact, the whole Testament is all full of things we can tell them about, starting with the creation events. We can go to the great flood, God's dispersing the people into the nations after the Tower of Babel, his calling of Abram out of paganism uh, to uh, come to become believing in the one true God, his miraculous enablement of Abram and Sarah to have a child of promise, the story of Joseph, as we've been learning about, uh, the Exodus, the conquering of the promised land. We can go on and on. In fact, that's the problem with people who want to ignore the Old Testament and all those marvelous works that God has displayed that give a clear picture that he's in control. He's ruling the world and all things in it. So we need to lift up and encourage people to not belittle the Old Testament, rather be amazed as it records God throughout history bringing about his perfect will in spite of the weakness and the fallibility of men. Indeed, when you think about it, Hebrews 11, which is a familiar passage we like to read, it's the, the, uh, the listing there of all the saints of old, these great saints of old. It's a legacy not only of these faithful men and women in the Old Testament, but it's also a recording of our faithful promise-keeping God whose mighty works preserved and delivered those Old Testament saints that they might fulfill his will. Psalm 92 and verses 4 and 5 says this, For you 
Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. Oh, Lord, how great are your works. How great are your works. We should never think lightly of the glory and the majesty of our God who condescended to bring about all the little details in our particular creation that we enjoy. And for those of us even who have had experience in farming or just growing a garden, we witness daily the mystery and the beauty of God's creation in the plants and the animals that we raise and, and consume, the beauty of a sunset, the rage of a storm, let alone the wonder of our planet's continual rotation and the exact balance of our atmosphere to sustain life, all testify of our Creator's marvelous work. So there's a lot of things you could sit and contemplate about and be amazed at what God has done and how he maintains it all and blesses us each day with being able to enjoy it. We would do well to make these words from Isaiah in chapter 64, verse 8, our prayer. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are potter, and all we are the work of your hand. We are the works of his hands. We are made, we are created because of him. There's no life on this planet when it comes to a human being outside of the sovereign will of God. And we look around us and see all the little details and the, the minute details, things that are amazing beyond our comprehension, how that works out, how that animal lives that way, how they exist, how they're able to survive through all the trials and troubles of life, the wonders of God's creation. It should be something that inspires us to declare his marvelous works to people around us and to give him the praise he deserves. As imperfect as we may be physically as human beings right now, we are each designed by God, and therefore we should praise him. We should praise him, for we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And above all, we should praise him for his work of our salvation, of course. That's the chief work that we should be thinking of. So let's move on now to the second verse. And we'll begin with the first half of the second verse, rejoicing in him. I will be glad and rejoice in you. We've spoken of this a little bit, but Spurgeon says on this portion of verse 2, gladness and joy are the appropriate spirit in which to praise the goodness of our Lord. Daily rejoicing is an ornament of the Christian character and a suitable robe for God's choristers to wear. I like that. <laughs> he kind of says, praise and, and, glory and rejoicing is a suitable robe for God's choristers to wear. All of us, I'm sure, have had our trials in our lives, some more serious than others, and perhaps more frequent than others. But if we are truly redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God, even in the midst of trials, we have reason to be glad we are His, and we can rejoice. We can rejoice in our salvation. Philippians 4, 4, that, that familiar verse reminds us to rejoice in the Lord sometimes, and occasionally I rejoice. No, it says rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So it's, it's easy for us to get caught up in the trials and troubles of life or just not feeling well or having you know, challenges facing us. Maybe things aren't working out with our, our job or, or other things. But we need to step back, consider who we are in Christ, and rejoice. Rejoice that he is our God, that he is working all things according to his perfect will. There's no accidents from God's point of view. We use that term you know, rather recklessly sometimes because we think in terms of uh, our human nature and we think of things as accidentally this or this happened by accident. There's no accidents. 
In truth, you could eliminate that word from our vocabulary and say it's God's will. He is sovereignly determining every event that takes place. And that's hard for us to conceive of, but that's what the scripture teaches us. That's what Brian's been showing us here in the in 1689s that covers all these different scriptures that point to that truth. God's in control. Therefore, we have reason to rejoice, even though we're facing trials, because ultimately beyond all those trials is our hope of eternal life. Jesus made a very startling statement to the Jews who questioned his deity in John 8, 56. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. He rejoiced, and he saw it and was glad. That sounds kind of like the Holy Spirit that inspired David to write these first two verses here in Psalm 9 also led Christ to use these same words to describe Abraham's faith. If Abraham, who never knew Christ in the flesh, nor was a witness to his redemptive work, could by faith see his Christ's day and be glad and rejoice, then we who are the recipients of God's amazing grace and the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf can certainly be exceedingly glad and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. We should be exceedingly glad beyond all others. There are many things we can be happy about in our lives, of course. Loved ones who make us glad, our daily needs being met, good home to enjoy, but ultimately our greatest personal joy, if we are believers, that which makes us glad above all things, if we're truly secure in Christ, we should have before us the hope of eternal life where we will rejoice before his throne forever and ever with all those who are his. That's our future. That's our, our, our definite future if we're in Christ. But look carefully with me at that verse, though. Look back again at, at verse 2a. Certainly we should be glad and rejoice in what God has done for us, but the verse doesn't say that, does it? No, we are to be glad and rejoice in him. Rejoice in him. What did Jesus pray for his disciples in John 17, 3, in his high priestly prayer? And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. We should be glad and rejoice that we, fallen sinners, who by birth were estranged from our Creator, are now able to rejoice in a restored relationship with him because of Christ's work on our behalf. But above all, we should rejoice in him, not just what he's done for us and can do for us or will do for us in eternity. We should delight and rejoice in him, delight in knowing him who is our creator, our redeemer, and the lover of our soul. What a wonder that mere creatures like us might become the sons of God and enjoy fellowship with him for all eternity. That's who we should rejoice in. Rejoice in him, our God. And certainly be thankful for everything else he does for us, but rejoice in him. Rejoice that you have a relationship with your creator that was once lost by Adam and was only brought to fruition when Christ died for you and the Holy Spirit brought you to repentance and faith. Rejoice that you have a God that loved you with an everlasting love. Rejoice in him. Think about him and the wonderful, glory, glorious truth that one day you will be with him forever and ever. Let's look now at the second half of our verse 2, which is singing to the Most High, singing to the Most High. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Spurgeon made this comment. 
Songs are the fitting expressions of inward thankfulness. And it were well if we indulged ourselves and honored our Lord with them more often. We can certainly praise God without singing via our prayers by repeating his word back to him or simply testifying of his saving grace in our life. That, that brings praise to God. However, when we sing, we kind of take it to a new level. We take it to a little, little higher level. Revelation 5 and verse 9, we are told they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll, etc. We remember that, speaking of Christ. And then later in Revelation 15, 3, it says, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. There's that recognition of God's works again. We will be part of that mighty chorus that continually sings the praises of God's name, the name of him who is the most high. There is no one higher than the triune God. Psalm 83 and verse 18 says that they may know that you, whose name alone is Lord, are most high over all the earth. Reminded again, Psalm 92 and verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to your name, O Most High. It is not only good, it is required. Required of those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to sing praises to your name, O Most High. We need to have high thoughts of God. I think that's probably a problem in today's busy world and with all that's going on around us. We need to be able to set aside the weakness of our own flesh and thinking and the distractions around us and think how high and how mighty, how glorious God is. And like I said, Brian's been trying to bring that out really as we go through the uh, confession, speaking about the decrees of God, his sovereignty and working all things according to his will. We need to think high thoughts of God. It's easy for us in our flesh to kind of bring him down and try and you know, somehow think of him in our terms, but that's, that's not the way it should be. We should always put him high, very high. In fact, beyond our comprehension, really. Literally, we cannot comprehend who God is in all of his majesty and all of his glory. But we should not try and lower God down to our level. We should always lift him up. He is most high. He is over all. He is glorious in holiness. And that's the type of attitude we should think when we come to him in prayer, when we sing his praises, when we meditate upon him, we should have very high thoughts of him and very humble thoughts of ourselves. There's really no comparison. And yet, he has brought us into his family by saving us by his grace and making us a joint heir with Christ. That's, a, that's when you begin to think of how amazing that is. This most high God who is so far above us, so immense in all things, yet he would bring us into a relationship with him. He has no need of us. He's not lonely, as some people try to depict in song and, and other things. He's not afraid of going along without us. No, he, he created us for his glory. And yet, in spite of our sin, he desires us to bring into this relationship where we would worship him. And we think of the pictures there in Revelation of the, the multitudes singing his praises and glorifying his name. We should be longing for that and also be in awe of the fact that he would allow us to be a part of that group and keep a very high, high thought of him. It's a challenge in a world polluted by sin and even our own sins that aside from the work of the Holy Spirit would lead us to will and to rebel against him. It's a challenge to think high thoughts, but we must. And truly, he is so holy and so mighty and beyond the full comprehension of the human mind, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. We shouldn't try to, to keep him high in our thinking. He deserves our best, our high, 
and our holy thoughts. We can't sing holy, 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 as it says in Isaiah 6, 3, with the angels, unless we have high, holy thoughts of him who loved us with everlasting love. And again, it's not something we do casually or indifferently, but something we do with the determination, which the psalmist is expressing here in these, these four I wills, the determination of a renewed mind that we purpose to do it. We purpose to do it. We make it a part of our life, our thinking, our worship, that we purpose to do that. So these four, our wills, are important for us to take into our hearts and minds and make them our own. That's what I would suggest you do with these, these four phrases here in these first two verses. In fact, I would recommend it. And you can look in Psalm 138, I think it is, uh, 139, and some later psalms that where you'll find that phrase repeated, I will praise you. I will praise the Lord for this. Look up other psalms. Look up the I wills, and you'll see how often, how frequently they're within the psalm. A determined statement of faith saying, I will do this. I will do this. Next week, Lord willing, we'll deal with a, a um, different portion of the psalms that speak uh, of us doing it together as a group of believers, using the words, let us, let us. This psalm is about I will, personal devotion to God. But next week, we'll deal with a psalm that talks about let us together worship God. Let us as one mind and one heart give him the glory and the praise that he deserves. Let us exalt him as a congregation. This will be a congregational worship. So I'll tell you what we'll do. Keep your Bibles open and look at Psalm 9. And let's read these two verses together and make it a personal commitment to, your, to God yourself as we read them together. Look at them. And as we read them, kind of, you know, let them marinate in your brain, so to speak, and think about these four phrases. So let's say them together carefully, slowly, beginning with verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Let us make that our goal today. And let everyone know that he who is most high is our God and our Savior. He is our God. He is our Savior. He deserves our heartfelt, personal praise, honor, and glory. He, de- he deserves our praising his name. In fact, um, as we go up today, make that third uh, phrase in this psalm. I will be glad and rejoice in you. Or actually, the, the second verse, uh, the latter half of the second verse. I will sing praise to your name most high. As we sing these hymns, as, as Daniel announces a hymn, we get up to sing or we're sitting and singing. Think about that phrase, that verse 2, the latter half. I will sing praise to your name, O most high. Think of that as you sing. That's how you should be singing. You shouldn't sing just to please everybody else or you know, hopefully make a joyful sound. But you should sing it with the fact that he is most high in your life. He is over all things to you. And therefore, he deserves all the praise and honor and glory that we can give him. Let's close in a word of prayer.